Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Chris Babbitts. Today's guest is Donna Drucker, the author of Contraception, a Concise History, published by the MIT Press. In Contraception, Dr. Drucker covers the development, manufacturing, and use of contraceptive methods from the late 19th century to the present. Importantly, she does so from the perspective of reproductive justice. Thank you so much for being with us, Donna. Thank you for asking. It's great to be with you. To get things started, could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, Since September of 2016, I've worked as the Senior Advisor for English as a Language of Instruction at Darmstadt Technical University in Germany. I'm also the author of two other books, one called The Classification of Sex, uh, which is about uh, Alfred Kinsey and the Kinsey Reports, and the other one is called The Machines of Sex Research, which is about, you guessed it, machines used in human sex research. So fascinating. You identify the opening of Aletta Jacobs' birth control clinic as the beginning of the modern contraceptive era. What was it about Jacobs' Amsterdam clinic that marked something different from the past? Yeah. Aletta Jacobs opened a birth control clinic in Amsterdam in 1882. And it was really the first time that a woman could get a woman-controlled contraceptive on her own without her husband's or a male relative's permission. Um, Women could get them individually from doctors, um, here and there, usually from a man called um, Dr. Mensinga, who was active in Germany, and that's where Aletta Jacobs first got her diaphragms. But Jacobs's clinic was the first time a woman physician opened a clinic for women patients to get uh, woman-controlled contraceptives on their own. She also seemed to have provided some um, some influence for uh, for women around the world who were seeking these methods. Could you talk a little bit about um, how people look towards Jacobs as, as inspiration? Sure. Yeah, Jacobs's clinic was active for twelve years, from eighteen eighty four. I'm sorry, um, from eighteen. Well, we'll pause at two thirty and then restart two thirty five. Uh, Jacobs's clinic was active for about 12 years from 1882 to 1894. And she really wasn't active in the birth control movement in the Netherlands for about 20 years until Margaret Sanger enters the picture and really enters Jacobs's clinic through the history books. Uh, Sanger uh, leaves the United States in 1914, uh, comes to Amsterdam early in 1915. And she knew that Jacobs had opened the first birth control clinic in Amsterdam and wanted to learn how to fit diaphragms herself from from Jacobs. And so Jacobs refused to see her because Sanger was not a licensed physician. Sanger ends up learning how to fit diaphragms from one of Jacobs' colleagues, um, but that's really where Uh, Jacobs comes into the historical narrative of birth control is through uh, Sanger's uh, contacting her. And um, people look to Jacobs' clinic and Jacobs herself uh, not only as a birth control advocate um, and a site for birth control, the beginning of birth control politics, but also um, as part of Jacobs' efforts for uh, world peace and the women's peace movement, which she was involved in um, for the rest of her life after the clinic closed. 
you've already mentioned diaphragms, but what contraceptive methods have had staying power over the years? Um, perhaps the method with the longest staying power uh, historically has been abstinence, which is, of course, just the uh, not perhaps refusal or denial of your sexual desires and uh, decision not to have sex at all. Um, also, we can look at timing methods. We can look at withdrawal, which is, of course, when a man uh, withdraws um, his penis from a woman's vagina at the point of orgasm, hoping not to leave any, any sperm inside. But, of course, that's a very tricky method to get right. Um, and it's also not always clear if it's been effective. Uh, we can also look at timing methods regarding a woman's period, which were not very accurate considering it wasn't widely known when exactly women ovulated until 1929. So any timing advice you might read before 1929 is pure guesswork. Um, also, uh, barrier methods for men have had a very long history back as far as the um, 18th century, um, often made of uh, animal skin, fish skin, rubber, and later, later latex. Uh, condoms for men um, have been a perpetual part of uh, contraceptive history. And um, I should make a note that when I say men, um, or I usually mean in the past, um, people who are on, anatomically recognized as men or were given uh, or identified male at birth. Um, I know that is not always true, but if someone identified historically as male, um, I refer to them as male. How did the development of hormonal contraception change how people thought about their bodies, sexualities, erotic relationships, and reproduction? Uh, there are a number of pluses and minuses with the development of hormonal birth control in the mid-1950s. Mid uh, some of the positives were that it was hidden. Um, a woman could take the pill or later um, hormones in other forms uh, without a partner's knowledge. So if perhaps she was in an abusive or coercive relationship, uh, she could limit pregnancy uh, without a partner, a partner knowing. Uh, secondly, um, the birth control pill also separates the physical device from the act of sex. So there's no loss of spontaneity, which is something that uh, sex advice writers um, up until the pill are um, very attentive to, that putting on the condom or putting in a diaphragm um, lessens intimacy and it interferes with spontaneity. So having a pill does not interfere at all with kind of arousal and, and intercourse or other sex acts to, to follow. Um, it also later on, as we move into the 80s, 1980s and 1990s, um, it's available in different forms. In addition to the pills, such as the shot and the patch and the ring. And so if with some forms of birth control, you can have a, a shot or you can put on a patch, leave it on for two or three months, and then not even think about it, um, not having to take anything daily and just getting the patch, uh, you know, renewed um, every, every few months or so. On the downside, um, 
at, at, especially at first, uh, but still today, there tend to be side effects uh, depending on what formulation of the pill or of the hormonal method that one uses. Uh, these include high blood pressure, susceptibility to weight gain, um, an increase in the possibility of strokes, um, moodiness, and a, somewhat ironically, a, a lack of desire or a loss of desire. How do you define reproductive justice in the book, and how does this concept relate to the history of contraception? It's a great question. Uh, reproductive justice is a concept that emerged in the early 1990s, uh, primarily with um, organizations of African American women, and um, they eventually came to a framework that helps uh, reproductive rights and justice activists act um, and organize today. And it has three uh, seemingly simple but actually complex points, which are first the right to have a child, the right not to have a child, and third, the right to parent in a healthy environment. And they tend to use the word framework when discussing reproductive justice, as it is indeed a framework for studying and analyzing different phenomenon, um, usually related to um, public policy and the execution of policy. Um, and it also provides inspiration and uh, for organizing and activism uh, that provides a synthetic perspective on uh, reproductive, reproductive justice for everyone. Uh, for example, um, following the reproductive justice framework, um, uh, women's groups um, may organize around a sterilization abuse, for example, as a part of um, fighting against, um, or, or I'm sorry, for fighting for the right to have a child. Um, but on the other hand, um, other groups, or even perhaps the same group, might at the same time fight for the right to abortion, which is, of course, the right not to have a child. And these ideas are based in um, the Declaration of Human Rights, um, of course, promulgated in December of 1948. And so they have the basic um, foundation of that a human being has the right to control what happens to their body. So it's really not framed around rights, like my right to act or my right not to act, but really has a deeper, deeper roots in this global, uh, universally accepted, if not universally followed, uh, framework of the Declaration of Human, human Rights. Um, and so how it relates to, to contraception um, falls under really those first two categories, the right to have a child and the right not to have a child. And access to contraception and also to abortion and falls under that second um, point of, of reproductive, reproductive justice. Um, and so, um, but also the right to say no to contraception and the right to um, have a child or what the Declaration of Human Rights calls the right to form a family. Um, the first point um, is important as well. So we can use the reproductive justice framework to analyze when uh, contraception um, is not available to people or when it's being used against people, against their will, and really to see it as 
access to it in all its forms as part of, um, at the, at, in, the, in a fundamental level, uh, the right of a human being to determine whether or not they have a child. One of the most fascinating parts of of your book was how you cover the vanguard movement of women of color for the reproductive justice movement and the framework. Why have they critiqued versions of white feminism? In what ways have women of color pushed the movement for reproductive justice in new and vital directions? Right, that's a great, really great question. Um, uh, women of color... Um, really start to criticize uh, groups um, that focus on um, women's reproductive rights, kind of uh, starting in the 1960s, but more heavily in the 70s and 80s, because a lot of uh, groups in the U.S. that uh, focus on um, uh, reproductive rights and access are focused on abortion rights and access with um, and to a lesser extent, but important extent, um, access to um, birth control and um, general reproductive health care. And what that perspective leaves out, of course, is the fact that many women of color, particularly Native American women, uh, Latina women, African American women, were subject to uh, sterilization abuse um, by uh, federal and state agencies um, who thought that they were uh, not uh, fit to reproduce, um, an idea that goes way back in time, even to the mid-18th century, but is uh, circling around um, the U.S. health policy um, in starker detail uh, from the 1920s forward. So um, for a woman of color who sees a women's group focused only on abortion, um, might see that focus really as ignoring uh, kind of the, the second or the first part of the reproductive justice framework, is just the right to have a child, which was often denied to women who, for example, might be um, involuntarily sterilized on a Indian, or an Indian or Native American reservation um, in the 1930s or 1940s if a white physician thought that that woman had had, quote unquote, enough, enough children. So um, what we see happening, particularly in the um, early 1990s onward, is women of color um, organizing both within um, their ethnic groups to target specific issues um, important to uh, African-American women and uh, Native American women, um, Latina women, um, but also looking at um, ways that they, these groups, um, or I'm sorry, looking at what these groups have in common regarding uh, women of color's reproductive uh, rights and agency generally. So what you see is people working both um, on individual ethnic group issues, but also kind of in a pan woman of color um, organizational framework. Um, which is is really inspiring and hopefully inspires a lot of other people to get involved as well. I learned a lot in your last chapter, which touches on contraceptive concerns of approximately 225 million people 
throughout the world for whom contraceptive methods are inadequate or current contraceptive methods are inadequate. Could you talk about the very valid concerns that some of this large and diverse segment of the population have with available contraception? That's a great question. Uh, the lack of access to contraception and to uh, reproductive health care services, sexual health care services, is an ongoing problem, um, of course, for over uh, 200 uh, million um, individuals throughout, throughout the world. Um, these problems include um, contraceptives being too expensive, um, not having the right uh, type of contraception for someone's needs. For example, if they can't take a hormonal method, they want to use a different one. And um, perhaps a female condom simply, simply isn't available. Um, contraceptives can be forbidden by states. Um, so if a state wants to encourage its population to reproduce, um, it might restrict uh, the availability of contraceptives or even contraceptive information if they want to promote um, pregnancies and births. Um, also kind of on a more um, intimate or personal level, um, there may be pressure by partners um, either to use or not to use uh, contraceptives that um, go against what the person who would become pregnant uh, views on reproducing are the other problem that we can we can see, um, which in the U United States slang is called stealthing, is a form of kind of a reproductive abuse, really, in which a partner tells another that they are using contraceptives, but when in fact they aren't, or they remove a condom, for example, during sex without the other person's knowledge. Um, and so the person who could get pregnant's right to choose pregnancy or not is really taken, taken away. So we can see a lack of access kind of on an intimate level, kind of on a local level where we, uh, people can't always get the uh, devices or um, information that they need, and also on a national level where national governments may not make contraceptives available. So it's a multi-layer problem. Do you have any predictions about what contraception might look like in the future? Well, I think there will probably be development on both the two major areas of contraception, which are chemical or hormonal contraceptives and on the other side, which are barrier or behavioral method. I'm sorry, I'll, I'll start that, the future part over again. Um, there will be likely developments in the future of contraception along two lines. Uh, the first is along the chemical or hormonal line, and the second is on the barrier or physical method um, or behavioral line. And so um, in the 2000s, we saw um, the further work on the development of a hormonal method for men, which um, did not work um, because the World Health Organization pulled the study due to complaints by the participants about uh, hormonal side effects. Um, and I think we'll also see um, development of um, other kinds of perhaps barrier methods um, 
perhaps something related to uh, blocking methods um, for sperm um, that don't necessarily cover the whole penis, but might be available to people who aren't worried also about STIs, for example, um, internal sperm blockers that are physical, like the gels and like a physical, um, small physical objects that would block sperm. Um, but if the history of contraception is any guide, there will be uh, a continuing innovation in this area. Uh, and one last point I would say is that there will likely be additional development of specific contraceptives for uh, transgender individuals, both people who were assigned female at birth, people assigned male at birth, um, again, both along the hormonal line and on the physical barrier line. Donna, it has been great getting to chat about contraception. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks a lot. It was a pleasure. And for everyone else, head to the MIT Press website purchase a copy of Donna's Contraception. And thank you to our listeners for joining us today at New Books Network. I'm Chris Babbitts, wishing you the best as you engage with cutting-edge works of history.